And now I will continue reading in John's Gospel, the 13th chapter. I will pick up in verse 31. Here again, the Gospel of Christ. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would fill us with the love of Christ Jesus, that we might love one another and so prove to the world that we are his disciples. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I said uh, earlier in the announcements tonight that we need to be careful how we think about Monday, Thursday, even though with Monday, Thursday, the word Monday referring to commandment. So this is commandment Thursday or new commandment Thursday, or I would even say new Torah Thursday, new mandate Thursday. Uh, And that seems to put the emphasis on our love for one another. The real focus of Monday, Thursday, as with everything else that happens through Lent and during Passion Week, is really on the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, his son. It's the love of God. That's what we're really here to celebrate tonight. But some of us struggle with the love of God. We struggle with accepting the love of God. Let me ask you a question. Can God stand to be in the presence of sin? Can God stand to be in the presence of sinners? Can the holy God bear the sight of unholiness? Could God ever hang out with sinners? Now, I realize for some people, maybe really even for a lot of people in our culture, this is a non-issue. Most people don't see the problem here. They think of God as kind of this Santa Claus figure in the sky who exists to keep us happy, who just wants us to enjoy life, who doesn't much care how we live or how we worship. And so they think that question is nonsense. But for those of us who have been in the church for a while, especially for those of us who have been in the church from childhood, who have church backgrounds, uh, we know better. Uh, We know the stories from Scripture that show us the absolute holiness of God. We think of Isaiah chapter 6, the story of the prophet where he comes into the temple of the Lord in his vision, and he has a vision of God high and lifted up in the temple, and he sees the glory of God in some way. And he cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Uh, He realizes he is undone in the presence of God. He cannot stand in the presence of God. We know Bible verses like Habakkuk 1.3, which says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. God cannot look upon wrong. He's too holy, too pure. 
And so it's easy for us to conclude either I've got to stay away from sin or I've got to stay away from God. But God can't stand the presence of my sin. And I'll tell you, it's this way of thinking. And I know, you know, right away you may think, well, I know the answer to that dilemma. I, I know how I know how to answer that question. I know how to resolve this tension. It's got to do with Jesus and the cross and all that. And yes, you're right. But I want you to think about this because a lot of us, even though we know those answers and we could run to those answers, in our everyday experience, we don't live in the glory of God's love. We don't experience God's love moment by moment. Uh, we don't live with, a, with an assurance of God's presence that God is really with us and God is really for us. And I would say this is why a lot of church people really struggle with the faith. It's why a lot of church people really struggle with assurance of salvation. How do I know I'm really saved? It's because we know God's holiness. We know God's demands. And we know we're sinners. And so it is easy for us to feel like I can never measure up. I can never be good enough for God. Surely God doesn't love me. And I'll tell you, that's why a lot of Christians don't feel as close to God as they should. It's why a lot of Christians don't enjoy church very much. It's why a lot of Christians don't pray. If you don't pray, this is probably one of the reasons why. It's why a lot of Christians don't evangelize, why we don't share our faith. It's why a lot of Christians lack joy and peace. It's because even though we might know the answers intellectually, we simply can't bring ourselves to believe that God really loves us, that God really loves me, that God likes me, that God delights in me, that God wants me. I'm a pastor, so I, you know, people open up with me all the time. I hear Christians talk this way all the time. Christians express how hard it is for them to accept that they are truly loved, that they're truly and completely forgiven. They have a hard time accepting that God has accepted them as if the good news were really too good to be true. And so for so many of us, the Christian life really starts to feel like a treadmill. It's all this effort, but we never make any progress. It's all this work, but there's really no reward. But what if we're wrong about all of that? What if God is not allergic to our sin? What if God does not stay away from our messes and our messiness, but instead throws himself into them? What if God doesn't pull away to protect himself from us and from our sin? What if that verse in Habakkuk, that God is too pure to look upon evil, is not the whole story? If we feel like we're distant from God, what if the problem is not so much that God can't stand the presence of sin, but that sin can't stand the presence of God? Yes, God is holy. We're right to affirm that. Yes, God makes demands. All that is true. But what if it's also true that God shares His holiness with us? That God fulfills His own demands on our behalf? That God loves us and that God even delights in us. That God rejoices in us. What if it's true that God wants to be close to us even though we're sinners? What if it's true that God doesn't run from us but actually seeks us out? That God knows all our sin and chooses to love us and accept us and dwell with us anyway. Think about how many times this happens in the story of the Bible. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? 
God did not abandon them. God came to them right on schedule. He came seeking them in the garden sanctuary of Eden. He sought them out. And yes, God already knew that they had sinned. And yes, God does interrogate them about their sin to get them to confess their sin. And yes, God even does evict them from the Garden of Eden. Their sin has consequences, no doubt. But it's really, really clear when God comes and meets with them in the Garden of Eden that God still loves them, that God is not abandoning them, that God will be with them, and He makes promises to them. Fast forward a little bit more in Scripture. We, again, see God seeking out sinners when God comes to Abraham. And God makes Abraham... His own. He makes Abraham's family his own family. He makes Abraham's people his own people. But you know, Abraham came from a family of idol worshippers. He came from a family of pagan sinners. But God wasn't scared off by his pagan background. God came and appeared to him and spoke to him and blessed him and called him. Abraham's sin, his idolatry, did not keep God from seeking him out. God was seeking sinners when He came to the Israelites in Egypt and rescued them from slavery in the Exodus. And after the Exodus, God took the people to Mount Sinai and there He made a covenant with them. It's as though God entered into a marriage covenant with the nation of Israel. But as soon as they got done saying their I do's to one another, making these covenant vows to one another, it's as if Israel was a runaway bride. It's not God running away from Israel because of her sin. It's actually Israel running away from God. She's the runaway bride. She's the bride who cheats on her honeymoon as the Israelites make another god to worship the golden calf. But God doesn't give up on His bride. He keeps pursuing her in love. He keeps finding ways to delight in her and speaking words of love and joy to her. Words of of peace and of forgiveness. Later, Israel's sin gets so bad, the Israelites are exiled. They're sent away to a, a faraway land. They're enslaved again. But even then, God makes it clear He is still dwelling with His people despite their sin. He will be with them even in Babylon. And so in the prophet uh, Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet has a vision where the Shekinah glory of God that had dwelt in their midst in the temple, actually it's as if God packs up His bags and moves eastward to go and be with these sinful exiles in Babylon. God goes and dwells with sinners. The glory of God goes to dwell with His people even in exile. He's not abandoned them just because of their sin. He's with them even in their Rebellion, even in their lowest point. But of course, God's search for sinners, God's pursuit of sinners culminates with the incarnation. God has sent to Israel prophets all along, but now He will send His Son in human flesh who will come to seek and save the lost. If God did not want to get close to sinners, there would have been no incarnation. If God wanted to keep His distance from us, sort of keep us at an arm's length, there would have been no incarnation. He would not have entered our humanity. He would not have entered the the mess and the muck of this fallen world to share in our pain and in our suffering. But this is exactly what God does. In the incarnation, God in human form comes to be with us. He gets as close to us as He possibly can. Entering our history, our humanity. He doesn't share in our sin. He's the sinless 
Son of God, even in human form. But he does share in the pain and the suffering of this fallen world. He gets as close to us as can be. That Jesus told parables explaining what this was all about. Uh, I especially love the, the three parables Jesus tells in Luke 15 where he explains what God is doing in his mission. And so in Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories. He tells a story about a woman. He describes this woman who's lost a coin. And so she sweeps her house and keeps looking for it, keeps pursuing that lost coin until finally she finds it and then she rejoices and throws a big party. Uh, Jesus goes on to tell the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, but he loses one of the sheep. One of the sheep wanders away, and so he leaves the 99 to go after the one that's missing. And he pursues that sheep. He seeks after that straying sheep. And when he finds it, he lifts it up. He, he puts that sheep on his own back, and he carries that sheep home to be reunited with the other sheep. And of course, he caps off that chapter by telling the story of the lost son, the son who has played the prodigal. And in the story, it's very clear. Jesus is comparing himself to this loving father who's out looking for the prodigal son, scanning the horizon, looking for any sight of his lost boy. And then when finally the son appears, what does he do? He gives him the best robe and the best sandals and the best ring, and he welcomes him home and throws a big party. Jesus compares himself to the the father of the prodigal who goes out looking for his lost son. What's the picture you have again and again in Scripture? It's not of a God who refuses to come near to sinners, not of a God who's so holy that he keeps himself away, but just the opposite. A God who doesn't just say, give directions, sort of give us a road map so we can find our way back home, so we can find our way back to God. No, he comes to get us. And when he finds us, he puts us in his arms and he carries us home. This is a a God who's out looking for us, scanning the horizon for any sign of us. To be lost doesn't mean you've got to find your own way back home. To be lost means God's out searching for you, looking for you. He's ready to receive you and welcome you back in. This is a God who delights to have sinners in His presence. A God who is willing to hang out with sinners. Yes, a God who eats and drinks with sinners. A God who doesn't run from sinners, but runs towards them. Because He wants fellowship with them. God wants to be close to us. God wants us to be close to Him. Think about the charge that was brought against Jesus. This is why Jesus got crucified. The charge was, He eats and drinks With sinners, he welcomes tax collectors and prostitutes into his circle of friends. And then we come to a passage like John 13. Really the culmination of Jesus' ministry. And here we see the holy God fellowshipping with his sinful people. This is the loving God pursuing his fallen people. And this is just how far he will go to cleanse his sinful people and restore them to fellowship with himself. How does this chapter open? It opens by telling us that this took place at the Passover. The Passover really provides the framework for this whole story. The Passover really gives us the background that we need to understand the actions of Jesus in the upper room and, of course, His death that followed. What does Jesus do there in the upper room? He washes the disciples' feet to prove the point. This is the God of the whole creation. This is the Lord of lords and King of kings who is stooping to serve His people. 
He is stooping to serve his disciples by doing the most menial task possible. The disciples were sinners. We can see a record of their sin all throughout the Gospels. And indeed, the disciples were so self-absorbed that none of them thought to offer to wash Jesus' feet, much less the feet of the other disciples. But what they would not do for him, he does for them. They would not dare wash Jesus' feet. They were not going to stoop that low. But Jesus will stoop even lower to wash their feet. And of course, in washing their feet, this is an acted out parable of what is to come. The foot washing points to the cross where Jesus will truly cleanse his people so they can dwell with God forever. John does not record all the details of the meal in the upper room because he figures we've already got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We've already read those accounts. And so we know what happened, how Jesus took the Passover and transformed it into the Lord's Supper. John is writing to supplement those accounts. But it all takes place in the same context. We can put them all together. We know in the same context in the upper room, as Jesus transformed the Passover meal into something new and better, the Lord's Supper, this is really his way of showing his disciples that despite who they are and despite all their failings, he's going to give himself to them. He's going to give himself to the disciples as a sacrificial victim. He's going to give himself to them in the torn bread and the poured wine. He shows his desire to be close with these sinners by handing himself over to them in the bread and the wine. I mean, you can't get any closer than that by making yourself food for others. This is the closest possible union and communion. And it's interesting, that word that's used in the accounts of the Last Supper, that phrase, handed over, is really one of the keys in the whole New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, where we have another account of the Last Supper, uh, Paul introduces his account of the Last Supper by saying, that which I received, I handed over to you. So he received the Lord's Supper as a kind of gift, and now this is part of the tradition he's transmitting to the church. And then he continues by saying, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over. Paul had the Lord's Supper handed over to him, and then he talks about Jesus being handed over. Now, sometimes that phrase there handed over is read as betrayed, pointing to Judas's action, but it could also refer to God's action of handing Jesus over to death. And that's how Paul uses the language elsewhere, say in Romans chapter 8, where he says God did not withhold his own son, but handed him over for us all. He handed his son over to death. So the Lord's Supper has been handed over to the church. Jesus has been handed over to death for our sins. And of course, the sign of this, what brings all of this together, is when we gather at the table of the Lord. And we are given this bread and wine. The bread and wine are handed over to us as Jesus' disciples, as Jesus' act of self-giving love. He hands himself over to us to be eaten and to be drunk, to be made one with us. The story is all about God's handing over, God's giving, God's generosity, all that God will do in His Son, all that God will do through Jesus to redeem His people. It's all about God seeking and saving the lost. It is a story of grace and mercy and compassion. It's not the story of a God who keeps sinners at a distance. 
It's a God who crashes through every barrier to get to sinners, to get to His sinful people, to reclaim them and to save them. It's a story about a God who loves you and who wants to be close to you. It's a story about a God who marries His people and who feeds them from His very own table. Again, not a God who keeps us at a distance, but a God who draws us close. This is a God who loves us at our best, even though we're not at our best very often, but it's also a God who loves us at our worst. It's a God who, as Psalm 18, verse 19 says, there the psalmist says, God rescued me because He delighted in me. Why has God rescued you? Because He delights in you. And that's what you need to know. God hands Himself over to you. He wants you to have Him. And He wants to have you. He wants to be in your presence. And He wants you in His presence. But understand this as well. The whole story of the upper room is about a new Passover and a new Exodus and a new Israel being formed. Think about this. What follows the Passover and the Exodus in the original account? It's the giving of the Torah, right? The giving of the law. And so just as you have a a new Exodus and a new Passover there in the upper room, so too you have a new Torah also, a new law, a new commandment given to the disciples. Only this time not on tablets of stone, but a commandment given in the flesh of Jesus. In the flesh of Jesus, in His own life, as He becomes their example. His life becomes their law. His pattern becomes their new Torah that they're to be conformed to. This is what Jesus says in verses 34 and 35. This new commandment that He says, I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Go back to the very beginning of the chapter, verse 1. Jesus, there we're told, loved His people to the end, or He loved them to the uttermost. That is to say, He loved them to death and through death. Jesus showed a love stronger than death. The ultimate form of love is a love that dies for the beloved. A love that lays down its life for the beloved. A love that dies. That's the ultimate love. That's the kind of love we're called to show. A love that dies. A love that dies to self. A love that dies for others. The love of Jesus. love that follows the pattern of Jesus' own love. And since we eat and drink His death, we can say we are empowered by Him to love this way. Where do you get the power to love one another? You eat and you drink Jesus' death into yourself. And now you are empowered to go and die for others. But this is hard. We've talked about how God loves us in spite of our sin, how God loves us even at our worst. Can we do this with one another? There are people we are tempted to keep at a distance. People who are difficult for us. People we don't really want to give ourselves to. We don't want to give them our time and our money. We don't want to give of ourselves. It's easy for us to act like we're allergic to them, to kind of hold them at an arm's length, to put up barriers between ourselves and them. We refuse to be handed over to them. It's easy to love people when we get to choose who we will love. But what about those people that you don't get to choose? What about those people God brings into your life who are difficult to give yourself to? This is how G.K. Chesterton described it. I think it's really, really good. His words. Chesterton says, We make our friends and we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. 
The old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when it spoke not of one's duty towards humanity, but of one's duty towards one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice which is personal or even pleasurable, but we have to love our neighbor because he is there. A much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He, that is our neighbor, is the sample of humanity which is actually given to us. And then Chesterton goes on, he says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because so often they are the same people. That is often our experience. Uh, We'd all agree that the idea of loving our neighbor is beautiful so long as it remains an idea, so long as it's a concept, it's beautiful. It's easy to agree that we ought to love humanity as a kind of abstraction. But as Chesterton says, what about that person who actually lives next door to you? Can you love them? Or maybe it's the person who lives across the hall from you. Maybe a sibling across the hall. Or maybe even a person who lives in the same room. A spouse. These cases can be much more difficult. Oh yeah, I can love people in the abstract. That's easy. But the flesh and blood person who exasperates me every day, that's so much harder to do. I don't want to be handed over to that person. I don't want to give myself to that person. I struggle to delight in that person and to sacrifice for that person. But this is the new Torah that Jesus has given us to love one another even as He has loved us. We have to love the ones God has actually given to us, the people we are around every day, that sample of humanity that God brings us into contact with. Those are the ones we are to love. And you don't get to choose the players in your community. You don't get the community of your dreams. God doesn't give any of us that. The New Testament shows us this. We've got you know, a really beautiful picture of the church community in Acts 2. We love to go to Acts 2 where we see these saints, these early Christian disciples, sharing and learning together. They're worshiping and growing together. They're united in faith and in prayer and they're sharing their possessions with one another. It's this beautiful picture. And it looks so idealistic, so dreamy. But you know, the early church was not all Acts 2. It was also Acts 6 where some of the widows were being ignored. And overlooked. It's also 1 Corinthians 11 where the rich were shaming the poor and feasting and getting drunk while the poor were left with nothing. It's also Galatians 2 where Paul had to exercise tough love against Peter to correct Peter who was dividing the church along racial lines. It's also Romans 14 where believers were debating doubtful matters and dividing over secondary issues. It's also Philippians 4 where some of the prominent women in the congregation there in Philippi were fighting with each other and it was causing a mess in the congregation. It was just as hard for them to love one another in New Testament times as it is now. Just as messy, just as difficult. It's not always pretty even in the New Testament. You know, we've got that beautiful love poem in 1 Corinthians 13. But how rarely is it put into practice? How rarely do we show a kind of love that is patient and kind, a love that believes all things and hopes all things, a love that keeps no record of wrongs, a love that's not envious. This kind of love is costly and inconvenient. This kind of love is painful. It's sacrificial. It is hard to love your neighbor to the uttermost. It is hard to love your neighbor to the end. It is hard to die for your neighbor. 
It's so hard to be handed over to your neighbor, to love him sacrificially. These are hard things to do. It is hard to wash your neighbor's feet, to make yourself his servant. Jesus loved his disciples. He loved that disciples on that very night when they would be at their worst. He knew what they would do that night. He knew Judas would betray him. He knew Peter would deny him. He knew all the rest would fail him. And yet still, he washed their feet and served them a feast. Can you love those who fail you too? Can you pursue people even though they're sinners? Can you seek after sinners to love them even though they're going to let you down? Monday Thursday is all about committing ourselves to this kind of love. The love of Jesus. It's about receiving the love of Jesus, letting His love wash over you. It's about receiving the forgiveness of Jesus as we've already done tonight. Believing that those words are really true. That you're accepted. And that God forgives you. And that God has rescued you because He delights in you. It's about knowing the love of God shown to you in Jesus. But it's also about letting the love of Jesus flow through you out to others. This is a new Exodus story in John chapter 13. We've seen it's the new Passover and the new Exodus and the new Torah. It's also about the new tabernacle, the new house God is building. But that house God is building is a house of love. It's a tabernacle filled with God's love. Its height, width, and depth are the immeasurable love of God. The house of God, the church, is a place where God's love is known and where the love of God's people is known. It's a place where the love of God flows out to fill the world. This, in this community, this is where God is close to us and where we are close to one another. This is where God is continually pursuing us and seeking us out, pursuing a relationship with us, even at great cost. And it's where we're to be continually pursuing one another, seeking out one another, pursuing relationships with one another, even at great cost. This is the place where God gets dirty by entering into the messiness of our lives and where we get dirty by entering into the messiness of one another's lives as well. This is what God calls us to, to prove to the world that we are his disciples by loving one another as Jesus has loved us. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we do thank you for giving us your grace in Christ Jesus. We thank you for pouring your love out upon us through him. Now may that love you have poured out upon us, that you have poured into us, may it flow out to others through us. May we be the conduits of your love. May we transmit your love and show your love and display your love to one another and to the world. And so in this way, Provide evidence, irrefutable evidence that we are the disciples of Jesus. Even as you have sought and pursued us in Jesus, may we seek out and pursue one another. And even as you overcame our sin and every other obstacle to fellowship, may we overcome one another's sin and every other obstacle to form friendships with one another. May the fellowship of our church be what you want it to be. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.